Doctor? Well, where are you? Yeah, boy. I'm still here. Hmm? Huh? Doctor, you banished. What? Oh, nonsense, child. Nonsense. <laughs> you have? Do you think this is something to do with the refusions? Well, it must be. You're wrong. This is something far more serious. We're in grave danger. This is some form of attack. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this iconic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're talking about the thankfully mostly lost story, The Celestial Toymaker. <laughs> I'm your host, and I really enjoy watching four episodes of people playing life-size snakes and ladders. My co-host is Guy, who sadly lost his game of Trilogic on the 1,022nd move. Sorry about that, Guy. <laughs> hey, the only way to win is not to play. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, to set the context for this, because we're, we're going to treat this story very differently than we usually do. You know, we usually do these long, detailed walkthroughs that nobody really wants to, to hear. <laughs> but uh, this is very different. So, you know, we were approaching recording this, and you texted me and said you couldn't get through it, and we needed to delay the recording. So, what what was your state of mind? <laughs> yeah, I had uh, watched, I think, about one and a half episodes at that point. Uh, you know, we're watching it in reconstruction. The three yeah. out of the four episodes, of course, are lost. And, you know, no, no insult intended to the reconstructor. Uh, I'm sure he did what was actually, possible. I, I, so before you say what you're going to say next, I'll actually give the reconstructor credit. They put a lot of effort into like animating parts of this and, you know, doing mm -hmm. extra little things that, that they didn't have to do. So I, you know, kudos oh, to yeah. them. Oh, sure. But uh, they're not exactly edge-of-your-seat episodes to start with, and not seeing them in live action doesn't do them any favors because there's a lot of stretches where you have no dialogue at all going on. Uh, the upshot is I just decided I don't want to spend two hours watching this tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and as we'll see, uh, my, you know, history seems to be on your side. <laughs> so, usually I give some context to the story and then we walk through it, but we're going to reverse things this time. We're going to do a brief outline of the story and then spend most of our time on the context. And uh, we're already hinted at it here, but the reasons will reveal themselves as we proceed. Uh, so, and, you know, jump in anytime you want, but basically to give All a right. basic outline, we got the celestial toy maker. He's immortal and he and the doctor have clashed before. And basically he's a guy who exists in a dimension where he creates puzzles for people to solve and compete against him. And if they don't solve the puzzles, they become his permanent toys yeah, and he also cheats shamelessly, which I would think yeah. is, you know, what's it? I, I think he's more just a garden variety sadist than, uh, <laughs> you know, an actual person who likes games. That's true. He certainly doesn't follow the rules. And so the deal is that 
Stephen and Dodo must finish a series of puzzles before the doctor completes this 1023 move trilogic game. (laughs) And and it turns mm -hmm. out this, uh, I think, I think the toy maker pronounces it trilogic. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Like trilogy, but, uh, it actually is just the Towers of Hanoi puzzle, which, yeah. you know, it, that's pretty well-known old puzzle. And it is not, for me at least, I can't speak for others, but for me, it is not a fun game to play. Well, I'm always happy because I can solve it intuitively, so it makes me feel smart. But I looked <laughs> up what's the difference between what's in the show and the Towers of Hanoi. And the difference is that the Towers of Hanoi is typically represented as three to five or eight pieces that you then have to move around. And, you know, there's some rules. You, It's basically a pyramid, right? The pieces are in a pyramid shape. And hmm. you have to move them around to get them to another spot in the same pyramid shape. But you can't put a larger piece on top of a smaller piece. So you have to – you have three spots you can move them to and you have to figure out how to move them around to get to your end result. So the only difference between Trilogic or Trilogic and Towers of Hanoi is this has 10 pieces, which significantly increases the number of turns that it takes. You literally cannot solve it before 1,023 turns. (laughs) Yeah, I'm guessing it proceeds in Powers of 2 like that. Like if they had 11 pieces, it would be 2048 or something like that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And the thing is that it makes it sound, because Stephen and Dodo have to finish some puzzles before the doctor finishes this, but because he has to make 1,023 moves, it makes it sound like they're going to have plenty of time. (laughs) But as we find out, again, the toy maker cheats. Whenever he feels the doctor is going too slow or he wants to raise the drama, he simply moves the game forward, you know, 100 moves or something. So, (laughs) yeah, uh, not a good guy. Although, actually, the moving things forward, well, actually, uh, both of well, I'll save that for the end, but, mm-hmm. but, but suffice it to say that when he's, when he's cheating in the Towers of Hanoi puzzle, he's actually doing a little bit of foreshadowing of the resolution to the whole episodes or mm-hmm. the whole story arc. So, uh, so it does serve a purpose. Uh, and, and also it, it, Adds to the characterization of him as a jerk, which are probably, <laughs> well, I, I won't go into detail here, but but the characterization of him as a jerk and the uh, the foreshadowing of the resolution um, are probably two of the best things about this whole story. So, well, I I I don't know what you mean there, so I'll be curious uh, later to find out uh, how this is foreshadowing. <laughs> Uh, one of the things about the whole story is that there are basically these 10 side characters, and these are people who have been captured before by the toy maker, and now they have to do his bidding, and, and you know, they come back to life as, like, um, playing cards or, you know, other characters. Yeah, one of them's a snotty English schoolboy. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's different things. Well, we have 10 side characters. They're actually played by five actors, so they're replaying two or three roles each. The toy maker turns them into inanimate objects, and then he reanimates them to play against others, and he promises them that he'll release them if they win. One of the little themes in in the story is that Stephen 
who, by the way, as, as others have commented, it's Peter Purvis who plays Stephen. Just clearly doesn't want to be in the story. <laughs> like he has no <laughs> no energy. Stephen keeps insisting that these characters aren't real. They're just part of the toy maker's imagination, so they don't need to be treated, you know, humanely. But Dodo realizes that they are real people, and she has sympathy for them. So that's a important little thread in there. Hmm. And then, so basically. Steven and Dodo play snakes and ladders for several episodes while the doctor is muted. So we got to well, we'll talk about more in the context of why this is, but uh, the doctor is made mute and invisible. And all we can see is his hand playing this 1023 move of Trilogic throughout most of the <laughs> story. So that's kind of weird. And we'll see why that is. But, you know, by the end, Steven and Dodo do manage to finish Snakes and Ladders before the Doctor finishes the Trilogic game. And then the toy maker reveals it's actually impossible to really win because if you lose, you become his toy forever. But if you win, his dimension is destroyed, but he's immortal, so he's not destroyed. You die, and then he rebuilds his dimension. And as he says, he's kind of bored with this one anyway, so he's not really unhappy if he has to rebuild his dimension. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, in terms of a gambling game, we may need some regulation on this. <laughs> but, uh, of course, the doctor has to win in some way, so he wins, and it, it makes... You can't even tell what's going on in the story, right? Which is... Because throughout the story, as I mentioned, the toy maker would occasionally give a command to the Trilogic game saying, move ahead, you know, 100 moves or whatever. And the doctor realizes, okay, I'm going to give that, I'm going to get the game to end, but right before it ends, we're going to have the TARDIS take off so we can, you know, get out of here. Yeah, but he has to, he has to figure a way of making the last move while he's in the TARDIS or right. else he'll be destroyed along with the toy maker's world. Right. So first he yells out in his own voice, you know, move to move 1022 or whatever. So the next move will immediately or maybe he says 1023 the last one I don't 23, remember, yeah yeah so that will then end the game and they'll you know right before that they'll get the tardis out of there but that doesn't do anything because it's his voice and then you know he turns away so he can't see him talk and he says again move to 1023 you can't tell listening to it but you know what they explain in the story is he now does it in the voice of the toy maker <laughs> so, Mm -hmm. And because he used the toy maker's voice, the game then, you know, went to the last move and they were able to make the TARDIS leave. Yeah, I don't remember how he phrases it. It's like he said it the way the toy maker would have said it or something like that. Well, yeah, you know, what so they actually not... did, if you look, because he turns away and you can't see him, is then they just had the, you know, the toy maker actor, Michael Goh, uh, <laughs> say it. So anyway, this totally makes sense and, <laughs> and they escape. And, and yeah, that's the story. <laughs> I, I actually uh, thought that was a pretty, pretty satisfying resolution because I was, you know, when they. When they sprung that thing, that's something they didn't foreshadow is the mm -hmm. fact that the dimension would be destroyed if they won. That's true. Um, they didn't realize that until towards the end of the last episode. So I was kind of, I was thinking they should have handled that differently and built up that suspense a little more. But, but anyway, at the end of the episode, I was wondering, well, how's he going to get out of this one? Is it going to be something cheesy or will I find it satisfying? And actually, this I found reasonably satisfying. I could, uh, so that's one of, one of the good points about the show. And I'm, uh, 
I don't have a lot to cite here, but that was that was one of them. You may be and one of the few people who's used the word satisfying <laughs> And so I thought it was good that he had previously you know, the toy maker had previously had the game skip ahead a few times right. so established that it was possible and the doctor knew it was possible. So right. it was all right. I I like that part. Yeah, we'll come back to the very ending in a bit. But uh, so that being the story, let's now go to the context. (laughs) On the one hand, uh, you know, so I said that the doctor becomes invisible and we only see his hand and we don't even hear his voice uh, for most of the story. William Hartnell was on holiday for two weeks. So that was part of the reason. But that's not the real reason. (laughs) The real reason is that a producer named John Wiley and William Hartnell hated each other. I mean, they just huh. would scream at each other and, you know, Hartnell was very stubborn and so Wiley. What What were the, uh, I mean, was there something really obnoxious about Wiley? Well, or? I mean, I, I don't know the full details, but he was a, a new producer and Hartnell didn't like change and he didn't like being told what to do and, he, you know. Hmm. Well, you know, and I'm not sure what the specific things Wiley wanted that Hartnell was upset about, but they just really didn't get along. Huh. So I, th- I, I, I keep thinking that had I known William Hartnell in real life, I, I suspect I probably would have liked him. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't know. It's just that I get that feeling. Well, it's Could also one wrong. thing to, like, be a friend and one thing to have to work with someone who's being, you know, difficult, right? Yeah, true. So Wiley had this sort of conspiracy thing he wanted to do to get rid of Hartnell. And he decided in this story, if they made him invisible and mute, then at the end of the story, when he became visible, he could just be a different actor. (laughs) He could be gone. (laughs) And that's actually pretty close to how regeneration ends up working, but we're not there yet. But uh, Hmm. he was turned down by the BBC, so he quit because he just didn't want to work with Hartnell anymore. Hmm. And the BBC wasn't against getting rid of Hartnell, but they wanted to give a new producer some time in the series before doing so. So then they brought in a new producer. And it is adding insult to injury that, you know, after a few minutes of the first episode, they, he, uh, the toy maker mutes Hartnell, so he doesn't even have a voice for like three episodes. So you literally <laughs> just have the toy maker doing monologues and seeing this, you know, hand of a different actor moving around. And then to, but to even make it worse, for one scene, I don't know if you noticed this. I didn't notice it until the second time I was kind of listening through. For one scene, they actually used a different actor's voice for Hartnell. <laughs> hmm, didn't catch that, no. Yeah. yeah. Another thing about this, which, you know, is for discussion, is that some people feel there's a kind of yellow face slash yellow peril thing to this because the Celestial Toymaker is theoretically an Asian character. He wears you know, Asian slash Chinese clothing and therefore could be offensive. Yeah. I don't know. He's, he's wearing the robes and the hat of like a, a Mandarin, but neither his voice uh, nor his face uh, seems, you know, Asian in any significant way. He seems like a British guy who's got a taste for Chinese robes. You know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you, you know, this isn't a Fu Manchu portrayal, right? With the long fingernails and cackling voice and, and that kind of stuff. No, this is just a regular guy who happens to be wearing sort of Asian style clothing. So I, I, and I don't know 
if that was the actor's choice or their choice. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't think this is really problematic. It would be convenient if they had maybe costumed him differently so that modern viewers wouldn't feel this way. But then since we don't actually have the this show, it doesn't really matter because not many people are going to see it. Yeah. yeah. Now, they did have bigger ambitions for the sets in this, but the arc, you know, the story previously. Now, here's, you know, one of those uh, revealing how things work, right? So, for our listeners, the arc was last week, but we we recorded that months ago before we went on yeah. to our Kurosawa series, so we can barely remember it. But the arc uh, went way over budget, so they suddenly had to scale back the sets on this, so that's why they're pretty pretty primitive this isn't really a story that lends itself to fancy sets anyway i wouldn't think i mean right. you, you could make fantastic things but why bother you know what i mean and they, and they don't have room. to be yeah they just wanted to do more they don't have to be fancy in fact uh for the next doctor there's going to be a story that is very similar to this but it's very well considered so and it had the same thing where they you know had white walls instead of sets and everything so yeah it's it's not really the sets it's about the story actually you know i remember uh now that we're talking about it uh remember when it was one of the last episodes of the prisoner where where they lock him up in a big room that has all kinds of like souvenirs from his past or something there's like a crib and uh right, right. little tricycle and stuff um but that was a very simple yep, set yep. if i remember right you know uh so so something like that doesn't necessarily end up being a bad thing right so another thing I didn't know until I was reading up on it, but, uh, you know, so, so this story's been lost forever and there was just the reconstructions. And people actually had a very the, – the Doctor Who fan community had a very positive feeling about the story. Then the actual video of the last episode was found, right, as we watched it. And – it really tanked the reputation of the story. And I really? I had somewhat the same experience while I was watching. Yeah, because it took me a while to realize that, oh, it's it's live action again. It's not reconstruction. And then I was like, oh, actually, it doesn't – like, you're thinking when you're watching the reconstruction, oh, it would look so much better if it was in live action. Then you see the live action <laughs> episode. It's like, oh, actually, no, not really. <laughs> so, um well, uh, well, yeah. I mean, visually, it's not not that stunning, but uh, as far as the if since it was the last episode that was recovered, I wouldn't think that would change people's, at least not my opinion, because the last episode was the one I actually found somewhat <laughs> intermittently interesting. So, yeah, that's that's strange that just the difference between having a reconstruction and having the live action would sour people on it. I yeah. mean, did they not notice that the previous three episodes were just dull as dirt? <laughs> I guess. I would say Don't it know. got a little more interesting as it went along because there was a little more character stuff, but it just didn't. The problem was there is just no overarching story, right? It's just, here's yeah, another puzzle. Here's another puzzle. You do have these characters. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. It's like what they did with Keys of Marinus, except they actually took the time to have, like, yeah. interesting <laughs> mini settings in that. Yeah, talk about something just... that would make me rather watch Keys of Marinus, which is <laughs> not one of my favorite stories, right? <laughs> now, where I feel they really missed it, and, and they, you know, this story went through hell. I mean, the original writer, Brian Hales, who's going to be a very important writer in Doctor Who when we go forward... 
he wrote an original treatment, but then he wasn't available to rewrite it. So other people rewrote it. The final thing had nothing to do with what he wrote. He only got credit for it because of the, you know, you get into these weird things where because of the way it was written and rewritten, nobody can actually claim credit. So then he got credit for it, even though Mm -hmm. the final story had nothing to do with what he'd written. And there were people who actually took their names off of it because it had nothing to do with, you know, what they'd written, et cetera. So it's just one of those stories that went through a bunch of revisions and therefore had no kind of soul to it, you know, no kind of vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, now what I was, what I wanted to ask you since, you know, we didn't want to talk about our, our bottom Doctor Who stories so far. So where would you put this versus Web Planet? <laughs> and actually, I will mention, by the way, in the first or second episode, there was this woman who had this really high voice and I could swear it was one of the, the same actor as one of the bees in the Web Planet. And I did a bunch oh, of searching yeah. and That's- research. And it looks like I was wrong because I couldn't find any actors that crossed over between those two stories. But it was that high pitched, huh. whiny, I just want to kill myself thing listening to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Web Planet, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I don't know what I thought of it at the time, but looking back on it, I have kind of a fond memory of it. You know, I think it's the, the one with the, the dancing bees. You yeah. Know? So, well, be careful or I'll make you rewatch it. And then, uh, you know, it won't be necessary. <laughs> Just remember now, the this hair, one, hair dryer. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The hair dryer was in that one. Yeah. This one, uh, the end, like I said, I thought it was clever that, uh, the way the doctor used the toy maker's own example as the solution to remote control of the, of the board. And then I also thought the toy maker himself, even despite being just a, in a audio mm-hmm. you know, tracks three quarters of the time, I thought he still did a very good job of making the toy maker very unlikable you know he's just a he's a cheater and he's a guy who treats everyone as objects to serve his whims you know and he's uh uh just you know i i read something uh, i think it was in the comments to a youtube video last night that uh you know if you if a villain makes you want to punch him then whoever <laughs> wrote him probably did a good job and this guy is really punchable <laughs> except steven actually tries at one point and it has he no does. effect yeah, on he can. yeah i will I, he would be a much more interesting character i think if he stuck to his own rules right you know like someone mm. like uh, was it you know the riddler in batman right where he's got to follow his own rules but as we said the toy maker mm. will just cheat at any time which actually makes him less interesting cuz okay you know, he could have just moved the Trilogic game to the last move any time and ended the game. Like, you know, and he wouldn't have any compunction <laughs> about doing that, right? Um, oh, sure. There is something compelling about a villain who has his own sense of honor, so to speak, or his own code. But then what what the toy maker loses by not having that, it just it does at least make him that much more dislikable as a villain, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're... <laughs> so that, that that's okay. I, I'm you know related to that. I will say, unlike uh, you know Web Planet and maybe some others, I mean, there's no bad acting in this. And in fact, you know, we talked about the five actors who played ten or more different roles. They all do really good jobs, and they portray these characters. It's it's just it's just that in terms of the writing, their characters don't have any meaning. 
you know, it's not like they save some of these characters at the end. It's not like it just nothing matters, right? Yeah, and and uh, you know, like Cyril, Cyril, uh, the schoolboy, um, who is actually a, a fully grown up guy and a, a big guy. Yeah. Um, and he's dressed up like a little Buster Brown, you know. Well, and, he first uh, he first plays the Joker card character, playing card character, mm-hmm. and then he's this other guy. And I'll talk about about that, but finish what you were saying there. Oh. But uh, he was another little subvillain who uh, was punchable, you know. So, uh, <laughs> and and then it's ironic because uh, in some ways I was kind of like him when I was in school, <laughs> just a little obnoxious bastard. Well, little funny thing there. So his name. So first of all, first he is uh, the Joker card character, and they're trying to get him to do things for him, and you know, sacrifice himself or whatever. And he refused to do that <laughs> to his credit. And then the same actor portrays this Billy character, who's this schoolboy you talk about. Well, that character is based on a literary character who was also named Billy. And in fact, the estate of the writer for that, you know, complained to the BBC that they had stolen the character. So the the announcer for the show, you know, the one who says, oh, next up on BBC is, you know, Doctor Who, you know, et cetera. They -hmm. they inserted a thing where he said, this character is not the Billy such and such character. You know, he's just inspired by him (laughs) or something like that. Uh, no, I have no familiarity with the character or anything, but yeah, it's funny. Well, it's, uh, that actually could be a little, uh, if they did it right, that could be a subversive kind of way of getting more people to watch. Because if that Billy character <laughs> is popular, they're going to say, oh, they're saying this guy isn't Billy, but he's like him, so maybe I want to see that. Right. Hmm. Well, not that it's hard to tell, but, you know, is this worth watching for a modern audience? <laughs> Probably the last 10 minutes of the last episode should uh, <laughs> should do it. Okay, there. We support the last 10 minutes. Well, next up, I'm going to – so, first of all, bad news. It's live action. <laughs> you don't have to watch a reconstruction. I know you love these reconstructions. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the live action more, but <laughs> some of the reconstructions have been uh, quite well done. Yeah. And uh, as you said earlier, uh, the creator of this particular one did did the best he could with the material available. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, they did know. a lot of different stuff, right? Like all the dolls, and at one point, they, you notice they were sort of creating those, um, I think, as CG dolls and maybe live action at some time. And they, I mean, they were doing a lot of stuff in here to... Um, to spice this thing up. Um, mm-hmm. well, next up, well, actually, so first of all, cause this is <laughs> related to the very ending that we didn't talk about. So at the end when they're, the, what's happened is that one of the last characters, actually the serial character we were talking about gives a bag of candy to Dodo. And then when Dodo and Steven and the doctor are in the TARDIS, Dodo gives the bag of candy to the doctor and he takes one and crunches on it. And, he and that chips. was very trusting of him, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because that, that toy maker, you know, he, he, he could have just given you a cyanide. And that candy Billy and character also was not good. He cheated all the time, right? So, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. So he chows down on one of the pieces of candy and he chips his tooth <laughs> and he needs a dentist. And that's 
the weird cliffhanger ending of this, but it's actually going to be relevant to the next story, which is called The Gunfighters. I I wanted to say about that candy thing, now, I don't think it's clear at the end of this that he chipped a tooth. I mean, he he puts it in his mouth, he goes, oh, oh, and it bends over like he's in pain or something, but it's not clear that he just uh, is... Is he about to die? Was he poisoned? <laughs> you know, or I, my theory was that it was a, like a jalapeno or a garlic or some you know, nasty candy. Um, but I guess. Uh, well, I'm giving you a spoiler. He chips okay. a tooth and he needs a dentist. And the s- title of the next story, and it's a very controversial story. So I'm going to be curious to see what mm. you think of it. It's called The Gunfighters. So, given the hint of the candy and the dentist, do you have any guess on what the background of the next story might be? Candy and the dentist. Background of the next story, and it's about gunfighters. I don't know. Was was Doc Holliday a dentist? Oh, wow. Good Good guess. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to say any more than that. <laughs> no, okay. But, uh, we will see how that plays out next week. <laughs> All right. 